Please keep your Bibles or reading devices open at Luke chapter 4. We are between series. Uh, Many of you know that Karen and I and uh, Trish Bartell are heading off as part of uh, our team from Woodvale to Nepal uh, at the end of the week, and we're looking forward to that, and we'll mention a little bit about that a little uh, later on in the service. But we're between series, and so... Uh, with, it's amazing how various things have coincided with our service today. It's wonderful having Travis here uh, to hear about what God has been doing in his and Pixie's life and uh, where things are going for the ministry. It's wonderful having Asher out there with Camp Diva. And I've been uh, kicking around in my head, what would we do? And uh, many of you will know, uh, if we could have the next slide, this, this film that has been out, The Sound of Freedom. So I've just pinched that title for my message today. Uh, and as I said, we're in between services. And I just wanted to bring a real focal point this morning in terms of who we are as the church, who we are as a church, what God has called us to be. And as I was reflecting on that two or three weeks ago, thinking about and and looking ahead to this Sunday, uh, that name, The Sound of Freedom, came to mind, obviously because the film is around at the present time, but also this wonderful passage that Karen read to us just a few minutes ago that took place uh, in the synagogue in Nazareth over 2,000 years ago. And as the text tells us, Jesus went into the synagogue in his hometown as was his custom. He was regular at the synagogue. And what he proclaims here in verses 18 to 19 of the passage is the sound of freedom. Now, most of you will have heard this. We promoted this last week, this film, and I want to promote it again. I encourage you to go and see it. This is an amazing film. It tells the story of a guy by the name of Tim Ballard, and and understand this when you go to see the film, okay? It's telling a story. It's based on a true story, but it's using the medium of a film to tell a story. But the name of the guy, Tim Ballard, he's a a, a real person. He founded an organisation called Operation Underground Railroad. He founded this organisation back in 2014. And this organisation has been dedicated to rescuing children out of the sex trafficking trade throughout the world. The film has garnered a lot of controversy. There have been lots of negatives and lots of critics have been um, talking about uh, some spurious things that are going around and comments that were made. But the bottom line is this, folks. This film shines a spotlight on an evil that is taking place in the world. And here is the interesting thing. Tim Ballard, as I said, founded this organisation back in 2014. Since then, Operation Underground Railroad has rescued 6,000 victims of the sex trafficking trade and that they've also provided information that has led to 5,000 arrests. Some of you will be thinking, well, it's just a drop in the bucket, and it is. But do you know what it means? It means that 6,000 lives have been changed. That is a good thing, isn't it? 6,000 lives have been changed. Are you aware that some 50 million people in our world today, around about 50 million people, live in slavery in our world today? 50 million people, think about that. There are more slaves in the world today than there were in the ancient Roman Empire. Many of those people are caught up in the sex trafficking trade, but it's in all sorts of other areas. Uh, Here are some older statistics. It would be interesting to to know a little more precisely, but roughly 25% of the world lives in what we would call enormous prosperity. And you might think, well, I'm not a wealthy person. Just have a think about this. I heard this many years ago. I don't think it's changed much, but basically it goes like this, that if you hold down a job 
if you're able to pay your bills, you're living in your own home, whether that's rented or mortgage or whatever, uh, you have some money in the bank and change in your pocket, you are among at least the top 10% of wealthiest people in the world. Did you know that? I think the stat might be even smaller than that, but you are among the wealthiest people in the world. That, that is the bald facts of the matter. 25% of people in the world live with enormous prosperity. 25% of the world live in grinding poverty. And by poverty we mean grinding poverty. I've been going through these stats recently. I, I was reading, or I've been reading again John Stott's book, the Radical Disciple, and he talks in one of his chapters on the theme of simplicity and he talks about how he was part of a group of theologians and church leaders around the world that put together a declaration for the evangelical, uh, the evangelical declaration for a simple lifestyle, which shines the light on things like slavery and poverty and what's going on in our world. When I read that stat again just a few weeks back, that 25% of the world lives in enormous prosperity and 25% of the world lives in grinding poverty. I, at the time, was preparing another message and looking again at Genesis chapter 1 and the whole, what it means to be created in the image of God and this good world that God put us into. And it reminded me again, reading that statistic, that's not how God intended it to be. God intended this world that he created for, it to, for us all to share in its resources, for us all to share in its prosperity and its wealth. That was the intention. But, folks, what mucked up the thing was sin. And sin continues to muck it up. So what I want to do this morning on the basis of Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21, specifically verses 18 to 19, I want to shine a light here on the mission of Jesus and our part in it, Okay just for a few moments today. So let's look in our Bibles at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. Specifically, I want to focus on verses 18 and 19, the passage that uh, Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah. Now, I've given you the background. Jesus is in Nazareth, he's in his hometown, and he's gone into the synagogue. It was customary, and by this time, Jesus' reputation as a teacher was beginning to be established. So it was customary for a person to come into the synagogue and be asked to come and bring a, a few words about the reading. It was customary in the synagogue for there to be a reading from the law. So that has already take place, taken place. Then there comes the moment when the reading from the prophets would take place. We don't know, we have no way of knowing whether Jesus intentionally turned to this passage in Isaiah or whether it was the set reading for the day, we don't know. What we do know is that when Jesus reads from this scroll, he reads from Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 2. Now let me read that to you, how it reads in the Old Testament. If you've got your Bibles, you might be able to turn across to that quickly uh, or your reading device. But let me read to you how it reads in the Old Testament. Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 2 reads this way. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favourable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, those of you who are following the text will notice that there are some slight changes in the quote that Jesus brings us. As a matter of fact, if you have your Luke Gospel open, if you look at the end of verse 19... Uh, as Jesus brings the reading to a close, to proclaim the favourable year of the Lord. Look at the phrase just before it, to set free those who are downtrodden. 
That isn't actually part of Isaiah 61. It comes from Isaiah 58. Again, we don't know whether Jesus just inserted that, but the point is that it fits the context of what Jesus is trying to get across. And so the other thing you will notice as you read this, if you picked it up as I read from the Old Testament passage, Jesus doesn't read the part about the day of vengeance of our God or comforting those who mourn. We'll come back to the reason for that in just a moment. But there is a deliberate reason why Jesus doesn't read that part. But here's what I want to talk to you about just for a few moments, because what Jesus is declaring here in verses 18 and 19 of Luke chapter 4 is declaring the king and his kingdom. He's talking about the king, and he's talking about the kingdom that this king is going to establish. Here is the first thing I want you to think about. In the first instance, Jesus draws attention to the ideal king. Now, go back to the Isaiah passage. Jesus is reading from Isaiah. He quotes, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And Jesus is specifically referring to this Jewish understanding. When they read prophecies like Isaiah 61, it created within the Jew the sense that one day God would bring to the world the ideal king. He would be the Messiah. And the passages that come to mind, we, we, we see a couple of things that are united here. Think of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. We know that that's referring to David, but ultimately it's referring to Jesus who comes from the line of Jesse, from the line of David. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Davidic line was the kingly line. And what does it say about this kingly line? What does it say about this king? The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, says Isaiah. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is the ideal king. God's spirit is upon him. Jesus is reading Isaiah 61. But there's more. This ideal king is not one who just comes to govern and rule. He comes to serve. And this is the the concept in the Jewish mind of the ideal king. He was king, yes, established and anointed by God, the Messiah. The Spirit of God is upon him, but he is also a king who serves. Let me read to you Isaiah 42. Listen to what how Isaiah describes him. Behold my servant whom I uphold. Again, it's another messianic passage. But here the Messiah is one who serves. The emphasis is not, is not on his kingship, but on one who serves. He says, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. And this servant, this servant king, what does Isaiah say? I've put my spirit upon him. I've anointed him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. Do you you see what the prophecies are saying? Do you see what Jesus is referring to here? He's talking about this ideal king. This ideal king, God will provide for his people a king, but he is also an ideal king. He is a king who will be a servant. I have put my spirit upon him and he comes to serve. Isaiah brings this out even more clearly, this concept of this ideal king and what he will bring to the world. He says, behold, he will, uh, with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. He goes on, Isaiah says, he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he establishes justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Who is this ideal king, this Messiah, this one who comes to serve? He will establish justice. He will establish prosperity. He will bring peace. 
He will set the captives free. He will release the oppressed. He will be the king who will walk in God's ways. He is the ideal king that every Jew looked for, the Messiah. And here on this Sabbath day in Nazareth, Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah and again he creates in the mind and heart of the Jew again, this draws to their their memory, this is the ideal king this king who serves, who will establish justice. And so as a result of this ideal king, he establishes the ideal kingdom. And it's simple. You see, in the Jewish mind, the ideal kingdom was a kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness. And look at how Isaiah describes it, the the reading that Jesus is looking at. Look at your gospel, Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because he has anointed me, he has set me apart to what? Preach the gospel to the poor. Or a better way of reading that is to declare or announce the good news to the poor. The phrase that Isaiah used is the afflicted or the humble. Jesus said, I come as the ideal king and the kingdom that I establish is good news for the poor. Now you have to understand that The way in which Jesus is using this, he's referring to the spiritually poor. He's talking about the spiritually destitute. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said what? Blessed are the poor. What was he referring to? Those who are humble in spirit, those who are destitute. They know that they have no hope except for God. They are utterly dependent on God. Jesus reads here at the outset of his ministry in the synagogue, he says that the Spirit of God is upon me and he has anointed me to preach good news to the spiritually afflicted, the spiritually bankrupt, those who know that without God they have no hope. He has come, says Jesus, quoting Isaiah, to release the captives. I like this. The the, the idea of the captive is of a prisoner of war, someone who is held in the grip of the prison, someone who has been subjugated. Jesus says, I have come to set those people free. They are held in the prison of life. I've come to declare pardon, to declare forgiveness for them. And then he he reads, makes an interesting statement. He talks about recovery of sight to the blind. Now, if you remember the Isaiah reading, it doesn't specifically mention that. But here's how we understand it. You see, in Isaiah, he says to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to, to prisoners. That's where this idea of the spiritually blind comes in. This idea of freedom to the prisoner means to open. And so the Jews understood this as the opening of the eyes of the blind. That's why Jesus reads it that way. I have come, he says, to recover the sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden. Again, a powerful description of people, people who have been shattered or broken by life. The crises of life, the harshness of life have thrown them to the ground. Jesus said the Messiah, the ideal king, his kingdom, his ideal kingdom, comes to lift those people up. And finally, he, in verse 19, he says, I, I have been anointed to proclaim the favourable year of the Lord. That simply means the year of salvation. It's not a full-blown calendar year as we know it. It's simply saying that this ideal king and his ideal kingdom comes to declare, to proclaim the salvation of God. Powerful statement. The backdrop behind it is the year of Jubilee. Now, I don't know if you've heard of the year of Jubilee, but in the Jewish law, 
the Jews were commanded that every 50th year they would have a year of Jubilee. And it was a time of release, a time of setting people free. If you were a Jew and you had become so poor that in order to live you had to sell your ancestral land, you would sell the money, raise the money and avoid poverty. But in the year of Jubilee, your land was returned to you. If you were a Jew and you had become so poor that you had to sell yourself into slavery in order to survive, in order to put food on the table for your family, if you sold yourself into slavery in the Jewish community, in the year of Jubilee, in the 50th year, you were set free. It's the year of Jubilee. And some people have speculated that maybe the year of Jubilee had just passed at the time that Jesus read this or a year of Jubilee was coming up. We don't know, but it's very significant because it's the passage that Jesus reads from at the outset of his ministry. And behind it is this understanding, this Jewish idea of Jubilee. And what is Jesus saying? I've come to declare that now is the time of salvation. It's the time to set people free. Now, if you've been following closely, you'll notice that there is a strong, strong emphasis here on on declaration and preaching. And you would be correct. But let me just give you some implications of what this passage is saying. Here's the first thing. Jesus, when he reads this passage of Scripture, is declaring that the ideal king and the ideal kingdom is present with us now. Look at verse 21. You can't escape it. He began to say to them, today, that day in that synagogue, he says, today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What is Jesus saying? You need to understand that this passage I've just read from, the ideal king and the ideal kingdom is here, this messianic kingdom that the Jewish people are looking for, for somewhere off in the future, is here, present now. Folks, the implication for us as Christians is the kingdom of God is here now. And I hope that what you see this morning is that there is no point waiting for a future far-off kingdom if we don't understand that the kingdom is present with us now. Where Jesus is, there is his kingdom. Now, yes, there is a future kingdom. We look forward to that glorious day. But, folks, the kingdom is present here. This this is the great tension we live with when it comes to the kingdom of God. It's present, but it's not quite yet fulfilled. But it is present here nonetheless. And so the implication that Jesus wants us to understand is the ideal king, the ideal kingdom is present now. Here's the second thing. The proclamation of this good news. The Jews very concretely thought of a physical kingdom of peace, prosperity and justice. We look forward to that with the return of Christ and the establishment of his reign. But here's the thing, that when Jesus is referring to this passage, the Jews understood it as a literal kingdom. Jesus is clearly referring here to spiritual release, setting people free. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about releasing people. And he's saying to the listeners, he's saying to us, my mission is one of primarily a spiritual one in nature. I've come to declare the good news, and the good news is that you are set free from sin, you're set free from guilt, set free from the misery of life. There is a future kingdom coming, but you can know that freedom now, says Jesus. That's the clear implication of this passage. And here's the other thing. And this is the thing that, would, that really offended the listeners on that day. 
Jesus also says this good news is for the whole world. It's not just for Jews. You see, the, the Jews, listening to Isaiah 61, they'd be going, yes, we're looking forward to the day when God's kingdom will come and the ideal king will come. And that's why in verse 2 it says the day of vengeance of our God because in the Jewish mindset, on that day when Jesus stepped in, uh, when the king stepped in, Messiah came and established his kingdom, he would exalt Israel and all the Gentile nations would be punished for their sins against the Jews. That's what the day of vengeance of our God refers to. Jesus, did you notice, does not read that part of the passage. Why? Because he wants his listeners to understand that this gospel is not just for the Jew. It's for everybody. Now, if you don't believe me, look at what Jesus goes on to say. Because at that point, if you're the preacher, he's getting such a great response because he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You're a bunch of Jews sitting in the synagogue. You've got the Romans who have oppressed you for decades. And you'd be sitting there and you'd be thinking, yes, Messiah has come, God's day of vengeance is here, the Gentiles are going to get cleaned up and the Jews are going to be exalted and this is a wonderful day. And it says there that every eye in the synagogue is on Jesus. They're waiting to hear it. They're waiting to hear it. At that point, you could have stopped the sermon. Great sermon, Jesus. Thank you. Wonderful. But Jesus doesn't. Notice what he says. He said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Ouch. He's back home. And then he goes on and says this, but I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land and yet Elijah was sent to none of them. In other words, he wasn't sent to one single Jewish widow. Where was he sent? To a woman in the land of Sidon, Zarephath. The woman was a widow. Zarephath was outside the Jewish nation. It was outside God's people. It was actually the land of Baal. And Jesus says, you know, there were lots of widows who were poor in those days, but where did God send Elijah? To the pagans. You're a Jew listening to this. Now, if he hadn't made the point then, he goes on and makes this point. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. It was another pagan. At that point, Jesus loses the audience. Look at verse 28. All in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. I don't know whether that determines the effectiveness of a sermon or not. Either they love you or they're going to throw you off the cliff. But they are filled with rage. Why? Because Jesus is pointing out very clearly that this good news is for the whole world. It is for all the downtrodden. It is for all those who have been thrown to the ground by life. Here's the other thing. The other implication of this passage, Jesus is our ideal king who serves. I've had that verse going through my head over and over as I've been looking at this this week where Jesus said time and time again, I am among you as one who serves. This is the nature of this ideal king. So what does that mean for us? Well, I just want to sow a thought in your mind this morning. 
And it's this. We are all small A apostles. I hope you get that. We are all small A apostles. Jesus is God's sent one. Have a look at verse 18 again. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. Very interesting word, that word sent. It means to be commissioned. It has two things that are attached to it. When you are commissioned in this sending, it's a very specific word, it means that you have been sent as the representative of the one who sent you. In other words, a king designates you as the one that he will send on this commission. And you go and you represent, when you speak, you speak for the king. You represent the king. That's the first thing. The father has sent the son and the son on this commission sent by God represents his father, the one who sent him. The second thing is this, that the one who has been sent comes with the full authority of the one who sent him. So Jesus, sent by the Father on this commission to save the world, is sent as the representative of his Father and with the full authority of his Father. Jesus said he, or quoting Isaiah says, he has sent me. Now I pointed out just a a couple of minutes ago that you will notice in this passage there is a strong emphasis on preaching and proclaiming the gospel. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus did not just come and preach the gospel. If you've got your Bibles, just turn a few pages forward to Luke chapter 7, verse 22. This is the occasion when Jesus has a deputation from uh, John the Baptist. He sends some, some disciples. John is having a few doubts in prison. And he asks the question of Jesus, are you the one that we're to look for? Or is there someone else? Now, I've already pointed out to you that Jesus is... Uh, ministry is primarily spiritual. The Isaiah passage, he understood it as setting people free from sin and death and uh, all the ravages of life. But Jesus didn't just stop there. And so this question comes from John the Baptist. They come to Jesus. Are you the one who is coming or do we look for someone else? And what does Jesus say? Here's the response, Luke 7 verse 22. He answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have heard and seen and heard. And what does he quote? Isaiah 61. Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. What was the ministry of Jesus? One of proclamation and one of doing. So Jesus, in declaring this jubilee, this release, in his ministry, he preaches, yes, that is foremost in Jesus' mind, but there is, it is accompanied with action. What is Jesus doing? He is declaring the kingdom of God and he is visibly showing the kingdom of God to that community by the actions and miracles that he performed. The king is sent by God to proclaim and to do things. Folks, we have this endless argument in Christian circles. Some people just say, they, they say things like, It's all about preaching the gospel. That's what we should do. We should preach the gospel. That's all we are called to do. And then you have the other extreme in the church that says, uh, we've got to just get out there and do good things for Jesus and there's no mention of preaching. It is not either or. That's not the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. It's not either or. It's not all just about preaching. It's not all just about social gospel. I remember years ago, a good man, he preached in the church I was pastoring at the time and he said to me, he, he was very strong on preaching the gospel. And he said to me over lunch, 
He said, I would rather send a person to heaven starving than send them to hell with a full belly. And I thought to myself, why is it either or? I was pretty young, so I didn't challenge it. But in my mind, I'm asking the question, why is it either or? Why is it? Why, why, why can't we do both? Isn't that what the gospel is about? It's declaring and doing. Jesus is the sent one of God. But here's the other interesting thing. You and me are sent ones. Have a look at John chapter 17, verse 18. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is what he said. As you sent me into the world, he's talking to the Father, as you sent me into the world, same word used in Luke 4, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And he's saying, ah, no, no, no. Jesus was sent by God and he, he just sent the apostles. That's just referring to the 12. They're the sent ones. No, they're not. Look at verse 20, the next verse. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. In other words, I'm not just praying this prayer for the 12, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Folks, that's you and me. We are sent ones. Here's the interesting thing. This word sent in Luke 4, in John chapter 17, verse 18, it's used twice. This word sent, it's the word apostello. It's the word that we use to describe apostles as sent ones. We are not apostles with that big A. The apostles have a unique place in the church. But folks, there is a sense in which every Christian is a small A apostle. We are all sent ones by the Father, by Jesus, into the world to proclaim and do the kingdom. The implication of this for you and me is that as members of his kingdom, we're called to push back the darkness in so many different ways. I've been thinking about it again. We, we are called to declare the sound of freedom. And it just keeps coming back to me in my reading and different things I've been thinking about and discussions I've had over the last few weeks. We are called, this kingdom of God, this king is present now, we are called to be a part of that mission of pushing back the darkness. We have been empowered by Jesus to effect change in this world. I want to refer to the evangelical commitment to a simple lifestyle again. They made this statement. John Stott quotes it in his book. He says, involuntary poverty is an offence against the goodness of God. He goes on and makes this point. 800 million people, these are old stats, but 800 million people in the world are destitute. 10,000 people per day die of starvation, folks. That ought to prick our consciences. And I'm not saying that to put you on a guilt trip, but it ought to mean something to us. We are called to live in community as Christ's people, and that means living in community with other people, becoming aware of the needs. I've said it before. I'm going to venture out into some dangerous water here, right? But I'm going to tell you this much. I've been thinking a lot about this. No government... So I'm using a couple of illustrations here, right? No government or voice will change this world. Are you aware of that? Won't happen. Now, I'm not telling you how to vote one way or the other, so please don't send me emails. But I'm telling you now that no... I've been convinced about this for uh, pushing on 40 years. No government 
no voice, no body, whatever it is that you want to establish, will uh, push back the darkness the way the church can. And I am convinced, I became convinced of this reading uh, Charles Colson's book, Kingdoms in Conflict, 35 plus years ago. And he talked about little platoons. Little, and I've mentioned this phrase before, little platoons make a difference in our world. What are little platoons? The phrase was coined by Edmund Burke. And little platoons consist of citizens and organisations that perform acts of mercy and oppose injustice. You heard a little bit about a little platoon through Travis today. We have another little platoon out here in the foyer, Camp Devia. We have other little platoons that we sponsor as a church, whether it's local or whether it's overseas. But Colson goes on and talks about the number of little platoons, people who are relatively unknown. There may be no one in their local community. They don't get all the accolades. They're not some latest pop star who's standing up and declaring what they're going to do about this issue or that particular issue. They don't get all the accolades. But they're little platoons that are plugging away and making a change and a difference in their community by doing things for Jesus. I was really surprised and amazed. I was having a conversation recently with someone and uh, Karen and I were sharing about this trip to Nepal and they were asking about it and what it was doing and we were explaining about the 11 booths or 13 booths they have on the border to try and prevent people, uh, young women particularly, from uh, being uh, forced into sexual trafficking and sexual slavery. And I was really surprised because they're a good person but they said, well, what's the point? And what, what their point was, that, well, there's such an overwhelming problem And if you're only saving three people per booth per day, what difference does it make? It makes a difference for those individuals. Does it mean that because the problems of the world are so overwhelming that we do nothing as God's people? You hear what I'm saying? We can push back the darkness in so many ways. So I just want to, and this is my purpose today, I just want to just run through some things very quickly that are attached with our church And uh, I just want to talk about setting the captives free. So uh, I'll just start with a couple of things. Let's talk about our local community. Folks, we've got some great opportunities coming up. And I know some of these things are things that we're looking for help for in our church. But, folks, there are ways that you can get involved. We've got coming up our holiday club. Okay, This is uh, something that Pippa's been organising. There's still a need for leaders. But we don't just get families from our church. We get families from outside of the community. You don't know the difference you could make by being involved in that little platoon. We have the Wanneroo show coming up. This is just a couple of pictures from last year where we engage with our community. It's not full-on gospel preaching, but it's there to establish a presence. It's there to say, we're here, we're part of the community, we love you. Uh, we're running through these a bit quick. <laughs> uh, Christmas, so you're, okay, we'll go on to Christmas, it's fine. We've picked a theme for Christmas. We use the Wanneroo Show to advertise, but you might want to be part of the Wanneroo Show. Christmas is coming up. We're going to do our Advent calendar as usual. But we've picked a theme about what's your favourite Christmas carol. You'll be hearing more about that. But that's what we want to take out into our community over the Christmas period. We're quite excited about that and the opportunities that it gives us. Uh, The next slide, Woodvale Secondary College. Now, I've just used that as an example. But, folks, we have a mission field right on our doorstep up here. We need people who've got a heart to go in and and work with the school chaplain. Now, I'm saying this quite honestly, and I'm not saying this because uh, I'm feeling worn out. I'm saying this because of the truth. I can't do everything. But I see these needs everywhere, and I'm just thinking, you know, it's not just Woodvale Secondary College. We've got schools around us where we could have a presence there 
if there are some people with a heart, and there are people with incredible needs, families and kids out in our schools. We're trying to get a few things started there. We've got uh, a couple of people who are interested, but folks, we, we just need people to climb on board. Uh, we've got louder than words, okay? I haven't put that one up, come in tomorrow. I just thought about that this morning, and I thought, that is another little platoon. The money that is raised from the sale of coffee, a simple thing like that, goes and actually helps people with real needs in the community. That's what it does. It's a little platoon. And you might say, well, it's not very big, any of these things. No, they're not. But all in small ways, we want to try and touch people and reach people into the community, bring the kingdom to them. What about the wider community? We've got our ministry. We've talked about it for some years now, ministry to migrants. And uh, if we could, uh, one of the things that we've got running is TESOL. Do you know what the biggest need is? We've got teachers that train. The biggest need is actually to get people along who can benefit from this. This is just a way of helping migrants in the community to learn English. If you've got some skills in advertising or promoting stuff, Asha would love to talk to you to get that word out into the community. Have a chat to her out in the foyer after the service. And in line with that, I was mentioned, this was mentioned to me recently, the Welcome Home Project. Do you know that we as churches, this is a Christian organisation, we can tap into government money that it can actually start to help refugees settle in the community. And again, this is a need. This stuff all comes across my desk and I'm going, this is fantastic. But I can't do it alone. I'm not complaining about that. I love what I do. But folks, I'm throwing this out there in the hope that this will tug at your heart to say, you know what, maybe I could do something here. You hear what I'm saying? We are the church. We are the sent ones. We are the sent ones. Sent with the authority of our Father, our Lord Jesus commissioned and acting as his representatives. So there's TESOL, there's refugees. We've got short-term mission trips. Again, you want to know about a short-term mission trip to India? Asher would love to speak with you. Kevin Vigas would love to speak to you about the mission trip he wants to run to Israel with Kesed Ministries. Get involved. Every daughter matters. We've mentioned that. Uh, that's coming up later this week. Folks, if God is touching your heart, it's a really simple thing. If God's touching your heart, if you've got some skills or abilities, I've left a sign-up sheet out there. Now, we're not going to just sign you up and assign you to something straight away. All we're asking is if you're interested in perhaps stepping out as one of Christ's sent ones, just give us your name and contact details, your skills and abilities in the area that you're interested in, whether it's missions or Every Daughter Matters or Louder Than Words or Holiday Club, whatever it is, just stop by the welcome desk on the way out and give us your details and give us your skills and abilities because, folks, we need to find out what those are. We've got heaps of people in this church who are sitting here. I've used this expression before, but they're unopened packages. You're unopened packages. We need to find out what you can do and what you can bring to help God's kingdom push back the darkness. I'm going to finish with it, with this. I love this quote. Because this is what the church is. This is who we are. The holiest moment of the church service is the moment when God's people, strengthened by preaching and sacrament, go out of the church door into the world to be the church. We don't go to church. We are the church. So let's be the church, shall we?